Well, as I mentioned in my weekly Realm post, we come to chapter 26 tonight, which tells a story purposefully similar to the two previous stories that we've seen in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20. It isn't exactly the same story. There are obviously some differences. There are different characters. There are a few scenes that are, of course, different. But the storyline's the same. It's a story about promise. It's a story about blessing. It's a story about the hope and all those being of God, right? The, the promise, blessing, and hope of God. It's also a story about His grace and His faithfulness despite the fear and deception that arises out of the faithlessness of a husband, which leads to the potential exploitation of his wife. It's also a story about the balance between prosperity and adversity in life. It's not simply a remake. It's a true story about a man who was his father's son. And that man made some similar choices. That son made some similar choices to his, uh, as, or made some similar choices uh, that his dad made. But he, like his father, also was graciously preserved. He was blessed. And he was preserved and blessed by their covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. What we're going to do simply tonight is look at the story. And then we're going to look at a few things that we can learn from the story. So those two easy points tonight. Uh, children, you'll find your words in their normal place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, we ask for you to work as always, by your Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes and ears that we might understand your Word, so that as it is preached, our hearts are convicted and our minds renewed, our faith is strengthened and our wills are fortified. We ask that you would allow us to receive it gladly and with anticipation. Would you fill me with your spirit as always, that I might be a pure channel of your grace? Attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to do, and use me as you see fit. For the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen. Well, I hope you'll follow along with me in the story. It begins exactly where chapter 12, verse 10 begins, with a description of the circumstances. There was a famine in the land. And it's as if Moses knew that this was, uh, that critics later on were going to claim that this was merely the same story told a third time. Because he, he specifically and very clearly differentiates between this famine and the one that Abraham experienced. There are two different occasions. This is also not the same Abimelech. 
It's also not the same military commander Feichel. Uh, those are uh, names that are used, uh, or titles that are used for nobility. Those are passed along. This Abimelech and, and, and Feichel are different. The famine's different. The king, his military commander are different. The main character's different, right? Isaac is not Abraham, but he is his father's son. And we see that very clearly. Well, Isaac and Rebekah arrive in Gerar, and when they arrive in Gerar, I believe it's a rest stop, and it's a rest stop, I believe it's a rest stop because it appears as though like his father before him, they're headed to Egypt, and I say that because of what God says to him while they're there. He says, the, the Lord appeared, Moses said, the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go to Egypt, and I find this very interesting because we see God acting in a very different way than he acted with Abraham and as well as the grandson to come, Jacob. If you remember back in chapter 12, God did not give Abraham a command to go or not to go to Egypt. But he did, and he was going to escape the famine, but he did protect both Abraham and Sarah while he was there and he blessed them and he brought them out. Now he gives a specific command to Isaac, don't go. And of course, he blesses he and Rebekah. And then later on, we're going to see in chapter 46 that he actually tells Jacob, the grandson, to go to Egypt. And he tells him not to be afraid. Go into Egypt. For he says he would protect him and bless him and make him into a great nation. So we have God doing different things in the line of these men. But notice the assurance that God gives Isaac. I will be with you, and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Up to this point, we've heard that several times, have we not? But we've always heard it in regards to Abraham. God has repeated this promise over and over again to Abraham but this is the first time that we see him speaking to Isaac, and when he speaks to Isaac, he does what? He gives him this same promise. He tells them that he is going to be the one through whom the covenant of grace would continue. He tells him that the promises that God had made to his dad, he is now making to him. What began with Abraham would, com would continue in and with and through Isaac. God had sworn an oath to Abraham. Now he's swearing that oath to his son Isaac. Isaac's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Isaac's descendants would occupy the land. Isaac's descendants, through them, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we see in verse 5 that God makes it very clear that he wants Isaac to respond to the promise in the same way his father responded to the promise, and that was through obedience. Based on the language of obey my voice, which, by the way, refers us back to Genesis 22, when we saw Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac and the language of my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, it will be found later throughout the law, God was driving home the point that the fulfillment of the promises were based solely on his covenant faithfulness toward Abraham and Isaac. 
But Abraham and Isaac were responsible to live in obedience to God. In other words, the covenant faithfulness of God was to lead to or result in the covenant faithfulness of his people. Richard Belcher puts it this way. He says, although God's promises are not dependent on Abraham's obedience to further his purposes, it is a reminder that the way people respond to God is important. He says, God will fulfill his purpose because he has taken the oath, but we pray that he will be able to use the faithfulness and obedience of his people to help accomplish his plan for the blessing of Abraham to come to the nations. Covenant faithfulness of God leads to the covenant faithfulness of his people. Now, while Isaac obeyed immediately, and he stayed in Gerar rather than go to Egypt, his faith in God and his promises was short-lived. Just like his father did, both in Egypt and Gerar, Isaac allowed his fear to overtake him. Isaac, Isaac allowed that fear to result in deception. He allowed that fear to lead to, to borrow words from chapter 17 of our confession, hurt and, and scandal, particularly regarding his wife. He actually treats her unfairly for his own advantage to save his own life. It's the definition of exploitation. In the words of Gordon Wenham, Isaac was prepared to sacrifice his wife's honor for his own safety. Fortunately, God kept Rebecca safe and pure as he did Sarah. In the words of Calvin, she was kept from being dishonored as a special privilege. God mercifully prevented Isaac's wife from being taken. But while Rebekah wasn't actually taken like Sarah was, taken by both Pharaoh and Abimelech, Isaac remained guilty. Isaac remained guilty. As a matter of fact, Alan Ross says that there's, there's this word play going on with Isaac's name, laughter, and the laughter that is described as uh, the, the laughter that uh, Abimelech sees going on between Isaac and Rebekah. He says this, that, that the, the laughter reveals this deception as being something, and I quote, uncovered, that uncovered his nature and made a mockery of his faith. And the Lord did exactly what he did with Abraham. Just as he used Pharaoh and the older Abimelech to call Abraham out, God uses this younger Abimelech, to call Isaac out. Again, in the words of Calvin, the Lord did not punish Isaac as he deserved, but he did allow a heathen to be Isaac's master and to reprove him in order that the censure would produce deep shame. I mean, think about it. He used a pagan... He used a pagan who seemed to regard marriage and the purity of the marital, marital bed more highly than Isaac. And he used him to reveal the baseless nature of his fear and the faithlessness in his heart. 
But as I mentioned when we, when we began, this is more than simply a story about Isaac's faithlessness and his fear and his deception and his scandal. It goes way beyond that. It's a story of a God who keeps his promises and graciously preserves and blesses his people despite us. Not only did God use Abimelech to protect Isaac and Rebekah with this divine or royal edict, he then allowed him to sow and reap a hundredfold in the midst of a famine. In other words, God provided a divine harvest. And Isaac also becomes or became extremely rich, and the language here is great. The language actually says, and the man became great and continued to become greater until he became, became very great. We get the point, right? He's got servants, he's got possessions, he's got flocks, he's got herds. None of which he deserved or earned. I mean, if he got what he deserved, he would have left with less than what he came with. But he doesn't. Just like Abraham, he leaves with more than he arrived with. But, but God's grace is not only evident in the prosperity. God's grace is also evident in the adversity. You see, his great wealth became a problem. The great wealth led to to envy on behalf of the Philistines. And they were, they were jealous of all he had. And that jealousy became, uh, grew to fear because increased wealth meant increased strength and power. And so that fear grew into animosity and then it grew into conflict. And that hostility took the form of the Philistines, filling in all the wells of his father Abraham, and then Abimelech casting Isaac out. And both actions were a way of saying, we're not keeping the covenant with your dad. But the oath between Abraham and Abimelech was binding. So to honor his father and to remind the Philistines of their obligations Isaac began to redig the wells, and he began to give them the names that his father had given them, but he didn't stop there. He began to dig more wells and give, give them names, claiming them as his own. But of course, the digging led to resistance. And to remember the resistance, he started naming these wells. He named one contention. He named the other one enmity. And finally, he, he goes and he digs a well, and this one they don't quarrel over. They let him be. And so Isaac names that broad places or room, and because the Lord had made room for them, and he was going to multiply, or, or he was going to allow them to be fruitful and multiply in the land. But here's what's really, really interesting to me about this. Isaac needed water to care, care for his many flocks, right? He's, he's become great. Very great. And he has all of these things, all of these animals and all of these servants. They need water. But what's he do? He doesn't stay at the wells that were his father's and really rightfully his based on inheritance. He didn't stay at the wells that he had dug. 
He dug a well. He named it. Resistance came. And he moved on. He didn't fight for what was his. He didn't fight for what was needed. And some of the critics think, well, well, this just proves Isaac is weak, he's timid, he's passive, and I don't buy it. Because remember, he is his father's son, for good and for bad, but he is his father's son. So what do we see him doing? He's handling the quarrels between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of Gerard, just like Abraham handled the quarrels between his herdsmen and, the, and, and Lot's herdsmen. You remember what he did then? He sought peace. He chose peace. And he deferred to his opposition. And we ask why. And we're not told. But here's what we know from what's preceded. All we know is that before his sin and before Abimelech's rebuke, Isaac was afraid and faithless. Since then, things have changed. Since he sinned and since Abimelech rebuked him, God has been gracious to him He's lavished him with gifts and blessings. He has more than he began with. And now he's exhibiting meekness and patience. And he's seeking to live at peace with others. It's a vivid picture of guilt, grace, and gratitude. His faith, at some point along the way, had been strengthened. He was trusting the promises of God. And what we see, again, it's another, it's a vivid picture of another, another illustration of the meek inheriting the earth. But surprisingly, Isaac doesn't stay at this well either. I mean, he had all the space. The Lord's provided the space. The, the Lord's provided a lack of contention. And yet he still moves on. And we ask the question, why? And again, we're not given a reason. But we are given a location. We're told where he goes. He goes to Beersheba. And again, we don't know his motivation for going, what, why he chose that, but the location gives us a couple of divine providential explanations of the importance of Isaac being there in that spot. First, remember, Beersheba was the place where Abraham had entered into the original covenant with the older Abimelech. This is where the tamarisk tree had been planted to remember that there was more to come. This is also the first place that Abraham brought Isaac after the events on the mountain in the land of Moriah. And again, jumping ahead to chapter 46, this is the location where God will tell Jacob to go to Egypt. This is a very special place. And Moses said it was there that the Lord appeared to Isaac. 
that very night. And what did he do? He reaffirmed the promises. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you and will bless you and will multiply you and your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. He reminded Isaac that he had nothing to fear because just as he had been his father's God, he was his God as well. He was reminding him that he had been his God, he was currently his God, he had been with him, he was currently with him, and he would be his God, and he would be with him in the future as well. And not because Isaac had done anything to deserve it. He had actually done the opposite. Isaac had not earned the blessings of God. He was the gracious recipient of the blessings of God as the chosen descendant of Abraham. And as he himself continued to trust in and to cling to those promises, by faith he would continue to experience the unmerited favor and the unmerited blessings. So while we don't have a reason for you know, that, that second cause reason, that motivation that, to move Isaac there, we do know why God providentially brought him there. He led him there through adversity to remind him that his hope was not in himself, was not in his circumstances, or his prosperity, or his peace, or his daily provision. His hope was in God and His Word and His promises. God led him there to remind him that no matter, no matter what fears or doubts he may possess, His Word was true and His promises were sure. In the words of Calvin, we can receive peace from no other source than from the mouth of the Lord when He declares Himself the author of our salvation. This does not free us from all fear, but our faith is enough to assuage our anxieties. And what does He do? Having heard and being reminded of the promises, He immediately builds an altar and worships. We've seen this repetitively throughout our study. This is a common, common reaction or common response. God would appear, He would speak, and His people would build an altar and worship. In the words of Derek Kidner, the altars built by the patriarchs were a response rather than an initiative. In other words, like His Father before Him, worship was a response to what God was not... Was not Yeah, it it was a response to what God had done. It was not a way of doing something, or it was not a, a way for him to get God to do something for him. I butchered that. It was a response to what God had done. It wasn't a way to get him, to get God to do something for him. But it wasn't manipulation. Now, the second divine providential explanation for why Isaac went to Beersheba is found in verses 26 to 30. Abimelech arrives with Phicol. Um, Isaac doesn't like it, and he reminds them of what they've done. 
And they respond in the same manner. But Abimelech and Phicol respond in the same manner that the older two responded to Abraham. And these younger two let Isaac know. He says, listen, let's, let's be clear. We know that the Lord's been with you. We can tell that the Lord has been with you. We want to enter into this covenant because the Lord is with you. You have a special relationship with the Lord. And because of that, we want to enter into this covenant. We want to cut a covenant with you. And, and despite the harm that had been done him, and, and despite the fact that he's already seen that they're, you know, they, ha- they weren't faithful with his dad's covenant, so there's question whether he's, they're going to be faithful to, with his, this covenant, but he enters into it anyway for the sake of peace and for really to secure what was already his. But more than that, cutting this covenant was a way Isaac was being set apart as the new covenant head. And this would be visible not only in, his, in the eyes of his own people, but in the eyes of the nations. So they exchange vows. They ratify the covenant with a meal. Again, things that we've seen. And Moses said, Abimelech and his men departed in peace. We see an example of what Solomon would later write in Proverbs 16. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies at peace with him. Well, in verse 32, the same day the servants show up and say, hey, we've dug a well and we found water and Isaac calls it Shabbat. Therefore, the name of the city is Be'er Shabbat to this day. We don't know if it's a, an old well and, and it received a... a, a the, former name, or if it's a new well and receives a new name, but either way, it was a way of reclaiming and reestablishing and reaffirming that it was his, like it had been his father's before him. Now, what I'd like to do is ask four questions, and then there's some sub-questions underneath those main four, but you know me by now, so, um, and these aren't exhaustive, and you know that as well. You could come up with your own. But the first question is this. We need to ask ourselves, are we clinging to our promise-making, promise-keeping God? Are we clinging to Him? His Word has been, continues to be, and will always be true. His promises have been, and will continue to be, and are right now, and, and will continue to be sure. And in the midst of our lives, we, like Isaac, we experience, and these are the problems that we see in this story, we experience external problems, we, we experience sinful problems, we experience, or sin problems, we experience interpersonal problems, we experience um, problems with our daily needs, and we didn't read th- verses 34 and f- 35, right? We experience family problems, they're coming. We experience all of these problems, and yet God remains faithful in the midst of it all. Our hope is not in the presence of blessings or in the absence of problems. Our hope is not in our prosperity. Our hope is not in our peace. Our hope is not in our provision, which are all gifts from God. Our hope is in God Himself. 
Our hope, our hope is in Him, His Word, and His promises. Are you clinging to that God? Second question, are we being mindful of the examples we're leaving our children? Our children don't just attempt to walk in our shoes when they're toddlers. Right? They walk in our footsteps when they're teenagers and adults. And we should be mindful of the paths we're walking and the examples that we're setting. Yes, they are and will be responsible and accountable for their decisions. But brothers and sisters, we are either helping or hindering their growth and godliness. Are we leaving spiritual legacies, imperfect though they may be, of faith and repentance Rest and peace. Can I say from my vantage point, you are? And can I encourage you to excel still more? And children, having said that, can I encourage you to thank your parents for the legacy they're leaving? Third question, are we thanking God for our prosperity as well as our adversity? In the words of Calvin, God brings opposites together that we might live in moderation. Our lives are made up of days that move back and forth between good and bad, happy and sad, prosperity and adversity. And only the Lord knows how He is working all things providentially all of those things providentially for our good. We should rejoice in our prosperity, but we should also be very thankful for the adversity because it's in the midst of the trials that He is at work sanctifying us and conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus. If all we did was experience the good and not the bad and not the adversity, in the words of Proverbs 30, we would forget the Lord. And if all we did was face the bad or the adversity, we'd profane His name. The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. The Lord knows what's best for us know that more than we know what's best for ourselves. So may we rest in Him every day, no matter what may come. Come what may. May we rest in Him. And finally, is God's grace so evident in our lives that others notice? Would others say of you and of me, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. How do we respond? Here's some of those sub-questions. How do we respond and steward our prosperity? How do we respond to and steward our prosperity? How do we respond to and steward our adversity? Are we a people at rest? Are we meek? Do we seek to live at peace with everyone? Do we strive to outdo one another in love and good deeds? As I told you a few weeks ago, we've experienced some things within our body, and those things have revealed your hearts. 
Can I say, just as I did a moment ago, that I, I think this is true, that others notice? And can I encourage you to excel still more? Brothers and sisters, you may be like me, and you, you read those questions, and you, you think, mm, not as much as I should. Or the answer to the last question, you may think, well, not as much as it should be. And I get it, our lives, up and down, days, days are mixed with success and failure. Days, we, we, we sin and we obey. But in the midst of the ups and downs and the good and the bad, in the midst of times where we're strong and when we're weak and in times of faith and in doubt and in times of sin and obedience, we can rest assured that God remains constant. He will never leave us or forsake us. His promises are sure because they're not based upon our merit or demerit. They're based upon His unmerited grace. The promises are sure because we've, we've been united to Christ. We're looking to Him in faith. We are spiritual descendants of Abraham. And the Lord Jesus was his father's son, yesterday, today, and forever. He, he has been, is, and will be that son. He was the one. He was the son who obeyed his father's voice. He kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws, and he did so perfectly to the point of death on the cross for you and for me. He did so on our behalf he took on the curse of sin that was rightfully ours. And He's given to us His perfect, His credit, He's credited us with the, His perfect righteousness. We who are enemies of God, we were enemies of His, but we've been made at peace with Him. Why? Because the Son has pleased the Father in all respects. Thanks be to God the Father. Thanks be that the Father will fulfill His promises. He will fulfill His promises for the sake of His Son, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who is the promised one. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our older brother and friend. And you've heard me say this many times over the last several weeks. He is the one in whom all the promises are yes and amen. May he be praised. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.